Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining me now is Dr. Monique Mansoura, the Executive Director for Global Health Security and Biotechnology at the MITRE Think Tank. She oversaw a recent report by the federally funded Research and Development Center, Building a Sustainable Biopreparedness Industrial Base. Monique, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Fascinating report and an important time as the world continues uh, to battle COVID and faces uh, monkeypox and is girding for the next uh, pandemic in whatever form. Um, the Biden administration wants to spend uh, more than $88 billion to prepare for future biological threats and pandemic. Give us the key takeaways from your report and what you found. Absolutely. Um, and again, thank you for this opportunity, Vago. One, one of the key elements, it's a fundamental framework that we have adopted in our work at MITRE in looking at how we prepare and defend ourselves from biological threats. And that is the concept of basic, basically putting B or bio in the defense industrial base. Um, I think as we've all witnessed and recognized, arguably the mRNA vaccines, one of the greatest science, scientific and technological accomplishments, arguably um, in, in a century, um, in recognizing the critical value of that sector of the bioindustrial base, biopharmaceuticals, medical supplies, uh, medical devices as foundational to what um, our country and the world needs as far as engaging them in a meaningful way to have um, the sorts of protections we would need for, for these biological threats, whether naturally occurring, accidental releases from a lab or intentionally designed bioweapons. What are the keys to getting that understanding, right? We're two and a half years into this pandemic and, argue, and it's hard to argue that we're actually in better shape. I completely agreed with you on the extraordinary effort um, to uh, create a series of vaccinations that have been uh, successful and unlike uh, some foreign ones, whether uh, Sinovax or, or the Russian one actually appear to work. From, from your standpoint, what are all the other, are, are we prepared, any more prepared today and what are all of the other things we have to consider to get better prepared? For example, governance, right? If nobody's in charge, nobody's in charge. And it's not particularly clear anybody's in charge in the interagency process to try to make this work. Right. What, one of the challenges or one of the awakenings for me, Vago, was uh, uh, in 2018, and I know you interviewed Eric Tuning back then, with the release of the report in response to Executive Order 13806, which was basically looking at the manufacturing base and the uh, supply chain resilience uh, of those sectors critical to our national defense. And as we looked at that, again, it was one of those aha moments. It was, where is biotechnology? You know, where is this industrial base that is so vital to our ability to defend against and protect populations from these threats? So, um, you know, uh, on the upside, um, what we have been doing since then is basically applying the rigor of industrial policy and assessment um, in, order, in the biotech uh, ecosystem. So it was a very, uh, sort of positive. It, it turned out to be a positive because, again, for the past four years now, we've been really consumed with 
um, developing that sort of rigor into this domain. And the question of then, I mean, it starts with what is the policy? What are you trying to do? And I know you heard from Dr. Kiyoki Jackson, one of my colleagues at MITRE recently too, how do we harness commercial innovation in order to build the sorts of protections and defenses we need against this range of threats. Um, so I think it's really important to recognize that there is a framework that we can leverage from the national security domain. And again, part of my argument here is that biological threats should be very much embedded into the national security domain. And that's one of the challenges about who's in charge and governance and accountability. Um, we've been having this discussion for almost 20 years since I've been involved in this space. Where does it fit within a national security posture, um, biological threats that is, and or does it belong in the health domain and public health, global health? So I think you know, 20 years later, we're still asking the question of who's in charge and creating normal um, or innovative sort of just-in-time structures, governance structures to manage yet another biological threat crisis. So it, it is one of the, it's the first sort of recommendation we have in our courses of action is that we have got to improve government effectiveness. We have got to have clear lines of leadership and authority and ways to account um, for the actions of these leaders as, as a first step. And thanks very much for signing those conversations. I appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to Kaoki uh, very much, and you're lucky to have him uh, as part of uh, the organization. And Eric Tuning uh, did a tremendous job uh, when he uh, was uh, the industrial base uh, manufacturing and industrial base uh, policy chief uh, at the Pentagon, obviously going on and becoming Mark Esper's uh, chief of staff uh, before leaving government and returning to McKinsey. What do the industrial base elements of this, Monique, need to look like? Um, you know, there is uh, a drive for onshoring. Um, there's uh, clearly a role for that, especially if you have vulnerable supply chains, for example, if they originate from China. Uh, on the other hand, um, we were in a position where we were competing, unfortunately, with our closest allies and partners as well and outbidding them. And then that got awkward. What's, what's both the domestic preparedness structure we need? What is the alliance preparedness structure we need? Because, for example, the United Kingdom is such a leader in, in, in pharma, uh, pharmaceutical and medical technology uh, that it played an integral and critically vital role in the development of uh, the COVID vaccines. How, how do we need to be looking at this both domestically and from an allied and partner perspective um, if, if we're going to learn the right lessons and, and better prepare for the next pandemic or other incident? Right, and, and like Kiyoki, I'm gonna be very mission focused. What are we trying to achieve? And, and I'm, I'm very inspired by the document out of the White House last September um, that really calls for some very specific uh, capabilities and capacities. That is, we want a safe and effective vaccine available in 100 days. We wanna be able to supply it to our population in 200 days and to be a leading global supplier um, soon after that. Uh, that's a bold statement. Um, from that, if that is uh, going to be the policy against which we resource, then we must build the capabilities, capacities um, to meet those objectives. Uh, having that as a stated goal, as a stated policy is critically important. Um, now all the hard work of uh, realizing that, again, I think um, what many of us appreciated was uh, so many thought that the ability to field a safe and effective vaccine within a year was not within reach. Um, two companies proved that false. Um, and now the 100 days is an enormous challenge for the entire ecosystem of innovators and developers. Um, and again, it's not just getting that vaccine, it's getting it uh, with speed and scale 
to protect populations. So um, we would break it down into all the steps and, and to have almost as Kiyoki talked about, have a sort of uh, build, design build test um, ecosystem where we are truly testing and evaluating. Mother Nature gives us plenty of examples or opportunities every year. For example, the flu vaccine this year, we pick our, we do our strain selection in February, and we hope by the time the, the vaccine gets deployed in the fall, that it will be um, effective against the circulating strain. This year, again, uh, as viruses do, the virus changed and the vaccine that we had wasn't well matched to the circulating strain. So every year we would almost have this natural experiment. Could we develop a vaccine in 100 days? And what sort of ecosystem can the government stimulate and incentivize to be performers to continually drive innovation and critically important, be a market maker so that you would be attracting the best of the best from the ecosystem to, uh, to harness that uh, innovate, innovation that exists in the private sector. You mentioned China, again, they are very clear in having a priority in their investments in biotechnology, having industrial-based policy, having industrial-based um, investments, and even novel innovative structures. Um, you know, their, uh, their government uh, uh, finance funds um, that David Adler just wrote about is a really um, uh, interesting look at how they're, they're financing, not just through government investments, but sort of the commingling, uh, the type of financing that I studied with Andrew Lowe at MIT about how we might finance this mission. Um, so are we better prepared or actually worse prepared, right? Because the course of the pandemic has fueled an anti-vaccination drive or, or, or sentiment, the likes of which we probably haven't seen in or, or ever seen really. And it's all driven by mis and disinformation about vaccinations, right? I mean, so in what respects are we better off? In what respects are we worse off if Americans in the next crisis, right? I mean, we still have something like 35% of the country that refuses to get vaccinated, um, including people in military service who don't want to get vaccinated, right? Which is sort of unheard of for anybody who's ever worn a uniform and had to get, you know, become a pincushion uh, with, with vaccinations, you know, being told it's for your own good and largely it is for your own good. Um, are we better off or worse off now, Monique, than, than we were? And in what ways are we better off and in what ways maybe not? Vago, that is such an important and challenging question. Um, one of the real distinguishing, fe distinguishing features of a biological threat is that each of us individually will have to make a decision. Um, are we going to socially distance? Are we going to wear a mask? Are we going to get a test and change our behavior because of the results of that test? Are we going to get vaccinated? So your question of has this experience over the last two plus years put us in a better or more challenging space. Uh, it's certainly for, for uh, leaders like me that have been writing playbooks and plans for 20 years, um, the concept that we would have life-saving countermeasures with this level of limited demand um, was unanticipated, but now it's undeniable and, and it is gonna be central to any plans or playbooks going forward and something that we have to address head on, both the supply side and the demand side. And how do we create uh, a community of folks that will be again, individually willing and able to um, 
you know, protect themselves with a countermeasure or bioshield, if you will, that really operates most effectively at the individual level. This is very different from the sorts of dynamics that we think about with uh, a missile shield or nuclear defense. This really are in de de uh, decisions at the individual level. The other thing I'll say, and this is playing out very publicly right now, is um, we are all exhausted. You know, as individuals, our families, our communities, this has been an extraordinary experience uh, and very challenging experience for everyone, including the, the extraordinary leaders in government who have been doing this for two plus years. Um, uh, and what's concerning is the are the challenges we're seeing with the continued need for funding and appropriations and some of the um, challenges that we're seeing play out very publicly now um, and, and not knowing whether or not we're gonna be able to sustain those industrial-based partnerships, those supplies of vaccines and countermeasures that are life-saving. So in a way, uh, you know, many of us thought we would never um, resort back to a cycle of complacency after an event that has killed over a million Americans and over six globally, six million globally. But yet we do, um, now we see it's very real. Um, the, the risk that we cycle back into complacency and don't maintain the levels of preparedness and sustain what we have built and, and sustain these critical industrial partnerships that are gonna be vital to our defense against these threats. Uh, as, as we've seen, right, I mean, the WHO thinks that that number could be as high as 15 million uh, around the world. And certainly, I think it's, it's, it's clear that we may be even be undercounting uh, in, in the United States. Yes. Um, let me take you to the last question of uh, biological uh, weapons. Uh, you know, you were on the response team in the wake of the anthrax attacks uh, that happened after 9-11, uh, and you focused on chemical, biological, radiological uh, threats uh, as well. Um, you know, early in the pandemic, um, you know, we would discuss on this show, well, you know, will there be a military impact as this, uh, uh, as COVID spreads? And indeed, we saw an aircraft carrier knocked out of action, um, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and it was extraordinary, right, dealing with 5,000 sick people. And, and one of the questions was, you know, if, if you had introduced um, an engineered biotoxin, and, and even as though, you know, even though I think we can agree nations shouldn't go there, um, we're in a new nuclear age where folks are continuing to work on nuclear technology, whether they're North Korean or Iranian, as much as we might not, not like it. Um, and there are people who are looking at engineered biotoxins, uh, Monique. Um, how do we need to be thinking about this, right? Because the nuclear threat is clear, a Geiger counter goes off, a chemical threat, the, the strips change color, uh, and you know you may be uh, exposed. And indeed, we've seen chemical weapons attacks from Syria and indeed some reports in, in Ukraine. How do we need to be thinking about the biological threat, the nature of the biological threat, the severity of it, and what are the things we need to be doing now from a military perspective that goes beyond, hey, just wear a mask, because for a biotoxin, that's not really, that might not do it. It's an enormous challenge. And, and one of the things I would point out is that all roads will lead to having uh, the proper medical countermeasure or protective equipment, right, to protect the individual, whether they're on um, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt or uh, in, in a grocery store. So uh, and picking it up, the biosurveillance piece, um, as you astutely called out, I mean, these are invisible threats. They don't, they don't have a boom. It's not clear. So our biosurveillance and situational awareness is one of the key elements of global health security that we focus on at MITRE um, and, and uh, are very conscious of how do we identify when these threats erupt and how they 
evolve as we're watching SARS-CoV-2 evolve in many, many variants. Um, this is an enormous challenge. It, and it's also a challenge of uh, not only for the military, again, this is a whole of government challenge and identifying um, for any particular scenario or ecosystem, again, whether it's the aircraft carrier or a civilian setting, how do we identify those threats? How do we protect against them um, uh, is, is one of the most vexing challenges that we find, but um, we can't be paralyzed by it. We have to recognize um, we all want agile systems. We all talk about dual use capabilities. Um, but I will also mention it's just the courage of leadership and the foresight of leadership. The reason why we have a vaccine right now for monkeypox, an entire stockpile for the, the whole U.S. population, is because of the, the courage and the foresight of great leaders like D.A. Henderson and General Phil Russell, who really stood up our nation's medical countermeasure program after in the wake of 9-11 and the anthrax attacks um, and had the wherewithal to command with great leadership throughout the department and the White House that we will have a stockpile of smallpox vaccines, which now would be protective against monkeypox 20 years ago, and really ran what uh, General Russell ran, what I would call uh, Operation Warp Speed version 2002. Um, it was an extraordinarily aggressive program that did much of the scale up in manufacturing at the same time we were trying to clinically test the vaccine. So these are hard things to do, but they're doable. Um, and I think, again, is, is the courage of leaders to be willing to be second guess that may, maybe they're making uh, a, counter, a countermeasure for a threat that isn't here yet. But we have to have exactly that sort of imagination uh, of the types of scenarios against which we need to protect our population, military and civilian and global. Monique, thanks so very much for uh, spending time uh, with us. Uh, a fascinating topic and would love to have you back on the program uh, to discuss, uh, especially as legislation moves forward really quickly. Where, where is the administration in the process of, um, you know, forwarding its legislation and congressional appetite uh, for, for driving change? And indeed, I would even add interagency appetite for driving this kind of change. Where are we? You know, we're hopeful that uh, new pieces of legislation by the, uh, like the Prevent Pandemics Act uh, are steps forward. Um, but uh, again, this, this will take a whole of government, not only congressional action, but um, a whole of government action about leadership, governance, accountability, um, and, and engaging the community. Because as we talked about, it's the power of the individual um, in, in really creating almost a pull signal for the demand and what their expectations are. It's a fundamental obligation of government leaders to protect uh, the citizenry. And the, these are, again, growing threats, as we talked about the biological threats. So Vago, Vag I really look forward to uh, having an opportunity to talk with you again. Thank you. Uh, Monique, you're welcome back on any time. Thanks so very much again, and the very best to you. Thank you, to you as well. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.